is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman. And I'm Mike Simpson. We're in the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles, California, where we are reopening today. State lifting almost all the COVID restrictions. Restaurants, bars, Disneyland stadiums, concerts. Full capacity masks only required in certain areas. But this is happening as the CDC labels that Delta variant a variant of concern. How worried should we be? Getting back to California, we'll look into whether the state is ready for reopening. COVID supply chain disruptions far from over. And no disruptions at Dodger Stadium. The world champs will finally get to play in front of a packed stadium again. Let's start with that Delta variant. This is the one out of India. Dr. Pavitra Roy Choundry researches and teaches bioinformatics and viral evolution at the University of Washington. Doctor, so what do we need to know about this variant? So the Delta variant, also known as B161.617.2, um, is a variant of SARS-CoV-2 that was originally identified in India. It's been recently designated a variant of concern um, uh, due to the fact that it has been spreading rapidly and increasing in frequency throughout the globe. Now, I want to be uh, as clear as we can on this, because I know when people listen to all this stuff about variants, some people get very excited and maybe rightly and maybe wrongly. When we say, when the CDC says, when the World Health Organization says that something like the Delta variant is a variant of concern, do they mean for everyone or is it really mean, does it really mean they're variants of concern if you are not vaccinated? Yeah, so so they're they're labeled variants of concern. They can be labeled variants of concern for a number of reasons. Uh, typically, they're due to the fact that they're either spreading very fast, so increasing in frequency very rapidly, which suggests that they could be more transmissible. They could be marked as variants of concern because they appear to escape vaccines more or because they cause more severe disease and lead to uh, more people being hospitalized or, or dying from COVID. So these are uh, multiple reasons why something may be marked as a variant of concern. Um, so it, this applies at, at, the, at an overall level. And, um, you know, these in these kinds of situations, data emerges over time, and we want to stay ahead of the data. So typically, the first indication that something might be a variant of concern is when you see it increasing in frequency rapidly. Uh, as to how a variant re- responds to vaccines or you know how what kind of disease it's causing, that kind of data tends to come a little bit later as we start to learn a bit more about it. Do we think we know, though, about the vaccine efficacy and this particular variant? Yeah, so data is starting to emerge um, about this. And so, uh, you know, there's there's been some data to show that uh, there's some uh, reduced neutralization um, towards this variant relative to the wild type. Um, but I think, you know, this is it's still early days uh, and more more data will emerge as time goes by. You know, I I remember in the early days of the pandemic, uh, various experts saying that they thought the coronavirus was going to be very slow to mutate, very slow to to have these variants spawned off of the original. But it now seems as if that's not the case. It it seems like almost every other week, and I'm exaggerating, but, but it does seem like that. Uh, that we hear about, 
a new variant in in India or in South America, or we've had ones here in California, and then there was another one in New York State. Uh, is this turning out to be a surprise to all the experts? Um, yes and no. So it's true that you know we thought that this variant the, that this virus was accumulating mutations in this relatively slow manner over time, and then late. Uh, in 2020, we were, you know, we were all surprised when we heard about the the B117, now known as the Alpha variant, where, you know, oh my gosh, it's got all these mutations and it's spreading so fast. So it seemed like a surprise, but but really, what happened was a number of things were going on at the same time uh, when when we started to learn about this. You know, um, there weren't too many consistent, um, you know. Uh, sort of measures in place to limit transmission. So there were there were areas of the world where you know things had 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 opened up, and you know there were lots of cases. There wasn't as much sequencing also going on uh, in an even manner across the globe, and uh, you know happening in a timely manner, so that we could be informed about what what kinds of variants there actually were circulating at the time. So that's why I say, yes, it was kind of surprising, but it was more like, it was more of a wake up call to say, Hey, you know, we need to watch this better. And the best way to do that is by sequencing more and sequencing quickly so that we can make informed decisions about, you know, policy, public health, um, and action at a both, uh, you know, individual community, uh, and community level to combat, uh, spread before, you know, before it's a situation where the, the horse has already bolted. Dr. Pavitra Roy Chowdhury researches, teaches bioinformatics and viral evolution, University of Washington, the virology division. California is back to normal again, uh, almost. Nearly all COVID restrictions are gone. People can go about their lives with no masks if they choose, at least in most situations. Are we ready? Anne Ramoyne, professor of epidemiology, infectious diseases at UCLA. Dr. Christopher Longhurst, chief information officer, associate chief medical officer, UC San Diego Health. Dr. Ramoyne, let's start with you. How smart is it that we're reopening now? Well, you know, it's it's it all depends upon whether or not you are vaccinated or not. You know, I think here in California, we have a lot of reasons to be confident. We have some of the highest rates of vaccination. Um, We have 50% of residents of all, 56% of residents of all ages and 72% of adults have had at least one dose of vaccine. Um, Our case rates and our deaths and hospitalizations are lowest. But at the same time, uh, you know, we still should be concerned. There are a lot of people who are not yet vaccinated, either because they can't, uh, they're not uh, able to get vaccinated because they don't meet the requirements or uh, the younger age groups. And also there are a lot of people who haven't chosen to get vaccinated yet. Uh, And we certainly have certain groups that are not yet well vaccinated. Um, We've seen pockets of residents that are getting behind in terms of vaccines. So not everybody is really ready for prime time here. And we're going to have to be monitoring that situation very carefully because we do have variants of concern, in particular the Delta variant, which is more transmissible. So the message is, if you are not vaccinated, if you come in contact with somebody who has COVID, you're more likely than ever before to become infected by the same uh, interaction that you would have had previously. So very important to remember. Um, that doesn't sound good. That doesn't sound like good news at all. Well, I mean, the good news is 
we've moved in the right direction. Our case rates are low and our, our um, hospitalizations low and our death rates are low. So we've, we're reaping a lot of the benefits of the hard work that we have um, and the progress that we've made. But it's just important to remember that just because you can do something like take that mask off doesn't mean you always should. Dr. Longhurst, what does it look like over the next couple months if we get the vaccination rates in these pockets where we don't have them where we want them to be a little bit higher, but let's just say they don't make it all the way up to where you would feel more comfortable? What does the the scope of the situation turn out to look like? Well, I think that uh, Dr. Ramon really outlined it clearly. You know, there are pockets and microcosms where you might run into people who are um, fully vaccinated and you should feel safe in those environments. On the other hand, if you're going to a mega venue that's indoors and holds 5,000 people or more, um, it would be nice to know that everybody there was vaccinated, wouldn't it? Do you think then we get these systems where you have to make sure you have to verify and the governor says, yes, there will be something rolled out. We're not going to call it a passport. They're using every word but passport. But do you foresee this actually going into into place? Well, I think that uh, it's important to recognize what the guidelines for the reopening are. So they did say that venues larger than 5,000 that are indoors should verify that uh, attendees have been vaccinated. However, they also clarified it and said that uh, that verification could be done with just a verbal self-attestation. So you're going to the concert and everybody's nodding, yeah, yeah, I'm vaccinated. Um, so the governor said on Friday here in San Diego that they are going to be rolling out an electronic means of verifying vaccination, which is really just a system um, that allows you to keep that vaccination proof on your smartphone device uh, rather than, you know, uh, on a piece of paper. Um, and on Monday in, in San Francisco, he uh, further kind of clarified that uh, this would not be mandated. It wouldn't be a passport. It was really just a verification process if private employers and companies want to use it. Dr. Longhurst, let me ask you first, uh, on the uh, University of California system decision to uh, mandate, unless, of course, there's a medical or religious reason, is my understanding, uh, vaccinations for August. Initially, their thinking, as I said, was these vaccines, all of them, are still technically really experimental. They're, They're not fully authorized yet. And there was a reluctance to mandate that anyone get a vaccine that hasn't been fully approved. Was that a smart decision then? And if it was, is it not a smart decision now to change? That's a great question. I really can't address the thinking behind the policy, which was developed by the office of the president. But I can say that we're all expecting to see approval of these vaccines shortly. No time in history ever have we had a new medication or vaccine like this that's been given to so many tens of millions of people prior to approval? So if we don't have the data at this point to uh, to fully approve it, I think it would be impossible to predict that we ever would. Yeah, I saw a couple of people going back and forth on Twitter the other day, and one said, you know, I'm waiting just to see if there's any side effects. And the other one said, well, what exactly are you waiting for? It's been months and it's been millions and millions of people. Yeah, that's right. I think that uh, we have a very high degree of confidence in the vaccines that have been uh, approved for emergency use in the United States. And uh, the, the smart money is on uh, full FDA approval happening this summer. Well, Dr. Ramon, uh, let me continue that line of questioning with you. And, and, and I agree. I mean, we probably know uh, enough. And, and I've mentioned on the show, I've been part of uh, the Pfizer trial for quite some time now. So I know something about how these trials operate. But that 
being said. Philosophically, and sometimes philosophical questions are important ones, is it a bad precedent, even though we're in a pandemic, and even though these vaccines are proving to be highly effective, all of them are, is it a bad road to start going down to mandate vaccinations or any medication for otherwise healthy people that have not been given full approval? Because the next time it might be something perhaps not as effective as the COVID vaccines. Well, you know, what I would say, I, first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm not an ethicist, but, but I think that, that the, the balance here is the, the risk versus the benefit and the benefit of getting vaccinated and the importance of getting vaccinated, not only on an individual level, but on a community level, far outweighs the risk here. And I think that, that we are in a, a very unique moment in time. We're dealing with a, a global pandemic. We've now you know, reached that threshold of we've lost 600,000 people here in the United States. And we've had millions, millions, millions of cases. And many people who didn't die but are suffering from long COVID. So the risk to the individual and the risk to the community is enormous. And I think um, these vaccines have proven to be extremely effective and extremely safe and will continue to monitor them. So I think, you know, it's very important to remember that an emergency use authorization is in place because of the, 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 the grave danger of this virus um, to, to individuals and to communities. And that we now at this point have an incredible amount of data. And I would like to, to just underscore what Dr. Longhurst said so well, which is that, you know, we're, we're very close to, um, to FDA approval for these vaccines. I, I think everyone is anticipating that these will be approved soon. Um, and it, the reason that they're not approved fully yet is because this has gone through the process and, and through the, um, the appropriate period of time required to collect the data to be able to get the information in place to have full approval. And Dr. Ramoyne, knowing what we've been through, the, the 600,000 long haulers, the lockdowns, do you think that kind of plays into what we've seen at least a little bit today? My unofficial poll didn't show that many masks off. I mean, there was one face at Starbucks. There was like two at Ralph's this morning. Everybody else kept them on. You think it's going to take a while for people to really get comfortable out there? Well, I think everybody's going to have to learn to think a little bit like an epidemiologist and to assess risk in ways that they haven't previously I, um, you know, I think that, that we've done a lot of hard work here in the, in the U.S. and in California in particular. We've got a lot of people vaccinated. We've, we've been reaping the benefits, but we're not completely done with this pandemic yet. And, you know, we always are going to be having to, to think about risk. This virus is here with us for, for the foreseeable future, and we have variants of concerns out there. And so I'm going to repeat what I said at the beginning, which is just because you can take your mask off doesn't mean you should. And as, a, as an infectious disease epidemiologist, what I would say is that if I go into a, a, a crowded uh, space and I'm indoors, I'm definitely still going to be wearing a mask. If I go into a grocery store, I'll still be wearing a mask. If I go into a place where I don't know what the status is of other people, I'll be wearing a mask. And everybody's going to have to start thinking like an epidemiologist and assessing their own risk and what they think is appropriate for themselves since we don't have the state making these kind of mandates. Dr. Ann Ramoyne, UCLA. Dr. Christopher Longhurst, UC San Diego Health. Thanks to you both. 
More supply chain problems, new COVID outbreaks at major shipping ports in China and Taiwan have slowed operations, will mean major delays for just about any product made in an Asian country. Waiting times for cargo ships loading the goods is one big parse. Now the big container ships, they're waiting 16 days, used to be like half a day. Brian Glick, CEO and founder of supply chain integration platform Chain.io. So Brian, let's talk about these delays. Because the the entire global system of all of these ships is pretty tightly coordinated, and we've had so many broken pieces that, frankly, everything's just frozen. It's, uh, It's like L.A. traffic. You've got one just cascades to the next to the next. Yeah, so what can be done other than just wait for it to shake out? Is that kind of the situation we're in? Um. Unfortunately, that's a big chunk of it. Uh, and I, to your points about getting back to normal, uh, we're not sure that it ever quite is going to go back to the way it was. So you've got a lot of companies trying to air freight things that they never would to get around. And um, frankly, we've got to get a lot more agile in how we plan because a lot of companies plan their shipping six months out. And now we have a new catastrophe every week. So people are getting having to become a lot more flexible. Do you want it, continuing that thing about normal, do you want it to go back to what was considered to be normal? Or was normal maybe not that good? Uh, normal was, I would say it's better than where we are today, but uh, I don't know that we have a choice. And what we're talking to a lot of companies about is this idea that normal, look, there was the port strike in LA years ago. There's been uh, environmental issues. Normal now is lots of things being broken. There's a lot of people on the planet, and it's not so much going back to normal as figuring out how to exist in a new world. Yeah, so if we're planning six months out, six months from now is is Christmas. So what am I doing to get ready for Christmas, knowing that I've already gone through all this stuff, right? First, there was a shortage of containers, and then there was the Suez Canal thing, and now we've got COVID outbreaks again slowing things down. And you know something else is going to happen eventually. So if I'm a consumer, what I'm doing is saving my money now because prices are going to go up. Uh, if I'm a business owner, I am trying to develop some really strong relationships with my freight providers so that when they do get a little bit of space, I'm at the top of their list. I don't want prices to go up. <laughs> Sorry. I don't. I just don't if want If you to... don't say it, it won't happen. No, I don't want them to go up. So what, what can I, I is, what, what, what can we do? Is there anything we can do? Uh, as a consumer, uh, unfortunately, we're in kind of a tough position. I think one of the things we all need to look at is, you know, how much how much can we diversify or be be willing to compromise on brand names or find things that might be more locally produced? Because uh, I think that gap between the advantage of buying an overseas product, if that price is going up, looking at sourcing locally, being more environmentally conscious becomes a lot more attractive as well. Brian Glick, CEO, founder of the supply chain integration platform Chain.io. You know, when you ask that, what can we do? Yeah. I expected him to say, get out and push. <laughs> Not me. This is what you can do, Charles. <laughs> Not me. But I don't want the prices to go up. Yes. I want them to go down. This we can agree on. I don't want them to go up. Coming up after this short break, it's time for Dodger baseball in front of a full crowd. The world champion Dodgers hosting reopening day tonight. It's the first time. The team will play at home at a packed stadium since 2019. Charlie Steiner, play-by-play announcer for the Dodgers. Charlie, take us through what it's going to be like to be there finally with all those people, 50,000 people again. You know, for the last several months, I have felt like a groundhog who has been peeking out from the little hole 
and hoping there was no oncoming lawnmower. Well, my head is now out, and for the most part, that lawnmower is far, far away. And so last year, of course, I did games from home. Up until this very day, we're doing games at Dodger Stadium with a diminished capacity. Today, we're back. Now, whether or not there'll be 50,000 or so today, I don't know. I guess we'll all find out together. But with each passing day, I, just as a human being, are, is, I'm feeling much better about things. I suspect fans are feeling better about things. If fans are still a little bit wary, I understand that too. We're all going through this process, and today is another big step in making things normal and better again. Yeah, you know, I was wondering about that because we've all done the the risk assessment, the social psychology on ourselves over the last, you know, 15 months. So first off, it was, okay, I will get together with some friends and then maybe I'll eat outside and then I'm going to eat inside. I'm feeling better every step of the way. Not everybody's ready yet, but I think maybe the ultimate is the big crowd. It's the baseball stadium. Whenever you feel fine doing that, that's when you're going to be like, okay, I've made it. I feel so much better about stuff. Can't wait to be able to go back to a game or a movie theater and not have to think about it. And I think that's, again, the first step on this journey back to normalcy. Uh, You know, again, I had no desire to go to the ballpark last year, even when it was empty. Uh, And now, of course, being vaccinated and all of the people around me vaccinated, Clearly, I feel better, and I suspect fans will, too. Some will just dive into the deep end of the pool immediately, um, and God bless them, and we welcome them back. Can't wait to see you. What do you think it means for the guys? And I'm sure they've noticed the difference, and they'll notice the difference today, because first it was like a bunch of cardboard cutouts staring at you. They probably even appreciated it when it was just a limited capacity, because at least it was live people. Yeah, oh, clearly it's better. You know, these guys, above and beyond being great athletes, They're performers, and performers want to perform in front of lots of people. And when the performers are pretty good, as the Dodgers are, and the fans are receptive, as Dodger fans are, it it will be a wonderful reunion tonight. While we've got you, let me ask you this, this MLB rule change uh, saying, hey, pitchers, if we catch you with any sort of sticky substance, uh, you're in trouble. Ten days suspended. What do you think about this? Long overdue. Uh, you know, I was in the game when uh, steroids first emerged, and it was, they were additives. Uh, they were supplements. And hitters generally got an unfair advantage, and we were all suckered in by the McGuire and Sosa exploits and all the home runs being hit. And then the crackdown. Uh, now it has been the pitcher's turn recently. Uh, to get initially a better grip, and then the better grip turned into basically cheating. Uh, And now, hopefully, this will bring an end to that at an unfair advantage. Everybody's talked about the fastballs. The real issue has been the the breaking balls, the spinning stuff, where it had a more pronounced spin, and consequently, it became more difficult to hit. Batting averages, the national or major league batting average at 237 is the lowest it's been in more than 50 years. Uh, the games have become less exciting as there have been more and more strikeouts. So 
on, on many levels, this is a very good first step to get the game back in balance with no unfair advantage. Now let the players play and be, let the best athletes perform at their best without enhancement. Charlie Steiner, play-by-play for the Dodgers. Charlie, thanks. A government study now adds further evidence COVID-19 was in the U.S. before we all thought it was. Researchers analyzed blood samples that were taken between January and mid-March of 2020, found several people in five states had COVID-19 antibodies before those states confirmed their very first cases. Now, this suggests the virus was spreading in the U.S. as early as late 2019. The earliest positive antibody tests were among people in Illinois and Massachusetts. That was on January 7th and 8th of 2020, indicating they were exposed in late December. The first U.S. confirmed COVID-19 infection was on January 21st, 2020. This is an Odyssey original. Find us on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.